What identifying mark. <clears throat> what identifying mark has Jesus placed on Christ Presbyterian Church? In the winter of 1977, I flew into Memphis for the first time. I was coming at the invitation of Dr. Hugh Francis, who was a member of Independent Presbyterian Church's pulpit committee. I did not know anything about independent, and I knew no one in the church. Dr. Francis told me he would meet my plane at the gate. Now, I assumed that there would be a large city of Memphis. There were bound to be a lot of people at the gate meeting people deplaning. And so I asked him, I said, Dr. Francis, how will I know you? <clears throat> and without hesitation, he said, I will be the one wearing a summer seersucker red checked sport coat. Now, those of you who are old enough to remember know that January and February of 1977 was a record-setting winter in terms of cold temperatures and snow. A red-checked summer seersucker sport coat would stand out. But Dr. Francis added another identifying mark. I will have a paintbrush in my lapel pocket. When I arrived on a cold, cold day, there stood Hugh Francis, an esteemed, renowned surgeon, in his red check, seersucker sport coat, with a paintbrush in his lapel pocket. And there was not another single, there wasn't another individual. Can you imagine that? that was dressed like that. I said, that's Dr. Hugh Francis. Jesus gave marks of identification to his church. We've seen in the last three weeks, he said, here's how you'll be able to identify my church. Here's how you'll know that Christ Presbyterian Church is my church. Jesus says, my church will preach the word of God in the power of the Holy Spirit. When you go to a church, whatever else is being done there, whatever, whatever good's being done there, if you don't hear the word of God in the power of the Holy Spirit. You need to get up and leave. It's not Christ's church. Last week we heard Jesus say to us, you will be able to identify my people by their worship. Their worship will be marked in two very, very clear ways. Their worship will be marked with a holy 
reverence as they recognize my transcendence, as they recognize God's transcendence, Jesus' transcendence, the transcendence of the Holy Spirit, the greatness, the holiness of God, there must be reverence. But he also said, it will be marked by passionate love as they recognize that this transcendent God has given his own son to die for us. This morning, we will see yet another way the world will be able to identify the people who belong to Jesus. First, I want you to see in the text we read from John 13, a distinguishing mark, or you might say a distinguishing sign. Verses 34 and 35, a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you. Now he's speaking to the church here. He's speaking to disciples, not the world, but to his disciples. So you must love one another. By this, all men will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. Now, how is that? How can that possibly be? How is that a distinguishing love? How does that prove that we're authentic? Isn't it easy? Isn't it really easy for us to love each other inside the church? The answer to that question is no, it's not easy. And if you think it is easy, then you don't understand. What divides the world out there? What divides the world? Nationalities, nations warring against each other, the war of the sexes, men and women, different ages. Young, old, education, educated, uneducated, wealth, people that have money, people that don't, race, red and yellow, black and white, racial strife. I learned a lesson in my first few years in the ministry that I had not previously learned. I knew it in theory, but I didn't know it in practice. The lesson I learned was this. Jesus is the owner and the builder of the church. He's the owner and the builder of Christ Presbyterian Church. Now, that includes this truth. Jesus is the one that brings people into his church. And you have, and I have, no control over his choices. The church is not a homogeneous group of people. Just as we've said, there's young and old, black, white, brown, yellow, Rich and poor, 
white collar, blue collar, educated, uneducated, Republicans, Democrats, independents, people who are in the country club and people who resent those that are in the country club. The church belongs to Jesus. And I will tell you that he will make a point of bringing people that are not like you and not like me or whoever or whatever you are. I learned that. I started laughing as I learned it. And I didn't mean this in a blasphemous way, but I would say, you know, Jesus, I could do a lot better picking out church members than you. Listen to this truth. There's not a more diverse institution in the world than the church. I love to to get down in the nitty gritty in the scenes of scripture and see what was happening on an everyday basis. You you look at the disciples, Jesus called Peter and Andrew, James and John. They fished together. But then Jesus shows up with a man named Matthew, Levi. He was a tax collector in Peter and Andrew, James and John's district. Uh, And you can just hear Peter say, Jesus, can we have a word with you? Do, Do you know? He's a tax collector. He's got a terrible reputation. Jesus says, Peter, you're in for a shock because I'm not only going to bring tax collectors, I'm going to bring Gentiles of all people. And because you love those Gentiles that I bring, the world will be convinced that you're with me. Go home today and Read Acts 16. And you see the first three members of the church at Philippi. They're introduced to you right there. The first one, the first member of the church at Philippi was a very successful Jewish business, not man, woman. First member of the church of Philippi was a Jewish businesswoman. The second member was a slave girl owned by others and was deep into the occult. The third new member was a hard, crusty Roman prison warden. Now, if you were planting a church in Philippi, 
Aren't those the three people that you would go pick out? See what I mean? Let me tell you about his church. Sitting in our congregations on Sunday morning throughout this region are whites, blacks, rich, poor, educated, uneducated, Young, old, Republicans, Democrats. And each one of us is prejudiced about one of those, at least one of those groups. They're artists and athletes, lawyers, doctors, extroverts, introverts, members of the country club, as we said, and those who resent those who are in the country club. There are repentant thieves, repentant drug addicts, repentant lesbians, repentant homosexuals, and repentant moralists repenting from their self-righteousness. And people coming from Protestant backgrounds, Catholic backgrounds, Jewish backgrounds, liberal backgrounds, fundamentalist backgrounds. There are some people that send their children to private school. My goodness, as parents, and we have sending our children to public school, we can't associate with those people and send their kids to private school. And then there's some sitting in those churches who send their who don't send their children to public schools or private schools. They homeschool their children. What I've just said to you about the church throughout our region. That's one sign that the church belongs to Jesus. That's what the church, Christ Presbyterian Church, will look like. It's beginning to look like that now. So that the world says... How can those people possibly love each other? Wow. Look at how they love each other. A distinguishing mark. Secondly, this is also a humbling mark, a humbling sign. Look at verses 1 through 15. I want to read this again. You have to. Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. He showed them the full extent of his love. How did he do that? The evening meal was being served, and the devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with a towel that was wrapped around them. He came to Simon Peter. He said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I'm doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. 
Then Lord Simon Peter replied, Not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Now skip down to verse 12. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I've done for you? He asked them, You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. But now that I, but now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set an example that you should do as I have done for you. And when we talk about washing feet, automatically, to us it takes on a spiritual connotation, doesn't it? Well, it didn't in that culture. The washing of feet was a common thing. People were barefooted and wore sandals. Their feet became grimy and soiled with dust and dirt. When they came inside, it was common to have someone wash the feet of those coming inside. If there were servants in the house, it was the lowest servant in the household that was designated the washer of feet. That evening, the disciples sitting in that upper room saw the basin that was there. It would have been there in coming in from outside. It was by the door. Every one of them saw it. But no one washed anyone's feet. It was beneath them. In fact, something humorous takes place. In fact, they started arguing about who was the greatest in the kingdom instead of washing feet. Look at Luke twenty-two twenty-four on your scripture sheet. Also a dispute. Uh, this is Luke's record of what happened in the upper room. Also a dispute arose among them as to which of them was considered to be the greatest. Jesus said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you're not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who's at the table or the one who serves? It's not the one who is at the table. Is, is it not the one who's at the table? But I'm among you as one who serves. Now, why did that take place? Why did they have that argument? Put yourself back in the upper room. Jesus had just said, one of you will betray me. And you can see the shock. Betray you? One of us? Are you kidding? That couldn't be. And they began to look at each other and said, who of us would do such a thing as this? And they slipped right into, you know, John may have said, you guys know it's not me. You know how much I love Jesus and how much Jesus loves me. No, it's not me. You know, Peter had to say, none of you are as bold as I am. Couldn't be me. They began to argue about who was the greatest. What Jesus said is so much like us. When he said, why do you betray me? They just slipped into this. 
into this argument with each other. And while they were doing this, Jesus stands up. You can just see. He stands up. He takes off his outer robe. And he wraps himself with a towel like the servant would be dressed who was washing the feet. And they began to realize what was happening. And then he stooped down. Began to wash their dirty feet. They were embarrassed. They were ashamed. This was the son of man and son of God. And he was washing their feet. That was in that context that Jesus said, guys, a new command I give you. Love one another. He's not, again, he's not, there's other places he says, love your enemies. There's other places where he says, love your neighbors. He is speaking to the disciples. He's speaking to the church here. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. And this will be a distinguishing mark. By this, all men will know that you belong to me because you love each other. This is not easy. Even among just, there were just 12 of them. Do you remember when John and James, it was near the end, it was near this time, it was just before this time probably a week before. John and James came to Jesus and said, it was really their mother that did it, but they put her up to it. And they said, hey, let one of us stand on your left. When you come into your king, when you sit on the throne, let one of us stand on your left and the other one on your right. There was a man named Robert Rains who wrote about that scene. And he understood. And he confessed his own sins. Listen to what he wrote. I'm like James and John. Lord, I size up other people in terms of what they can do for me, how they can further my program, feed my ego, satisfy my needs, give me strategic advantage. I exploit people ostensibly for your sake, but really for my own sake. Lord, I turn to you to get the inside track and obtain special favors, your direction for my schemes, your power for my projects, your sanction for my ambitions, your blank check for whatever I want. I'm like James and John. Change me, Lord. Make me a man who asks of you and others, what can I do for you? Jesus has answered, I'll tell you what you can do for me. Love as I've loved you. You go wash the feet of your brother and sister. A distinguishing mark and sign, a humbling mark and sign. Thirdly, I want you to see a transforming gospel love. Look at verse 1, the end of verse 1. Having loved his own who were in the world, 
he now showed them the full extent of his love. What drove Jesus to wash their feet? This was a gospel love. What's the center of the gospel? That cross. It was a gospel love that drove him to Calvary. Now that is so, so very important. Because it's what drives us. Maybe you're asking, okay, I understand that, John. But this is hard. Maybe for the first time in your life you said, it really is hard. To love your fellow church members. To love your fellow Christians. It's really hard. John, how can I do that? Like everything in the world, I want to say, continue next week. I'm going to let Tyler answer that. But I'm not going to do that. We're going to close the message with that because it brings us to the table. There's two powerful ways that teaches us not just to love our brothers and sisters, but teaches us the power to do that. A few years ago, I visited Niagara Falls. I was unprepared for what I saw. I'd imagined it, but it was so much larger, so much more dynamic, so much more transcendent. The great Niagara River, incessantly flowing over the sudden drop of 160 feet. That drop was 3,500 feet wide. The noise, thunderous noise, you can hear it from a mile away. At the bottom of the falls, there's a great pool of water. Now, what created that pool of water? The Niagara River, 3,500 feet wide, rushing over that drop and slamming into the earth. That had to create a pool, didn't it? It had to create a lake. The other end of that lake, the Niagara River continues. But there's a pool there. In the same way, if I claim that the love of Calvary, that the love of Jesus on that cross, the love of Jesus dying for a wretched sinner, a sinner who this very day has sinned in thought and word and deed. And if I, and 
My sins of this one day, of this one morning, are enough to send me to hell forever. And Jesus took that sin upon himself. And he died for someone who drove the nails. That's what the love of Christ, the love of Calvary, does in our lives. It brings that kind of love so there's a poo. There's a reservoir inside of us created by the love of God, created by Christ at Calvary. And if that's not enough, there's a second reason. There's a second power that we have to love like that. We're going to come to this table. We will come to this table in just a minute or two. And what will we be saying? Oh, Jesus, I confess my sins. I don't have to recount them to you. You, you know them. You know my sins more than I do. And I come asking for your forgiveness. How is it? How can we ask him to forgive us, but then say as we come to the table, but Jesus... There's this guy over here, I'm not forgiven. This brother, this sister, I'm not going to forgive him. So I want your forgiveness. Who's going to say that to Jesus today? I would advise you not to. I would advise you not to. I was known as someone who did not easily forgive. In fact, I didn't forgive, and I tried to justify from Scripture. And it was when Jesus, when I had to get on my knees and pray, and say, Jesus, I want your forgiveness. And there was this person over here. I didn't want to forgive. But I couldn't say, Jesus, I'm not going to forgive him. Please forgive me. I'm not forgiving him. That changes everything, folks. If you're not forgiving your brother or sister who has sinned against you, I don't care how old you are, how young you are, I don't care what the circumstance is. If you haven't forgiven them, go home today and get on your knees and say, Jesus. I know I came to your table today, but I'm still not going to forgive you. I don't think you'll be able to do that. I really don't. 
our hymn as we come to the table is most fitting. 597. <laughs> 